Hi, this is Christian Kuhn of Urban Village Church in Chicago. Welcome back to the podcast. Everyone, it is good to be back with you. We are wrapping up a sermon series here at our church called The Good Enough Life, and we will launch a new one uh, next week. But today we are looking at a passage from the Gospel of John. This is, comes from John 3, 1 through 17, and uh, some uh, verses in here that probably are well known to some folks, but uh, can be focusing on something beyond that. So first hear these words. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I say to you, No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I say to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. May God's blessing be on the reading and living out of this word. So there are lots of things that I enjoy about being a pastor, but as with any vocation, there are sometimes some downsides of whatever it is that you do for a living. One of the downsides of being a pastor is that I think sometimes people assume that you are a walking biblical commentary, meaning you know the Bible back and forth, you know every little verse, and can expound on that verse for a good few minutes or so. I always felt a little anxious about this when I would do weddings. It doesn't happen quite as much anymore, but uh, it seems like 10 years ago or so and beyond, whenever I would do a wedding... Uh, especially if I didn't really know anyone else there other than the bride and groom. And I think the bride and groom, as they were putting together their seating charts for the reception afterward, and they were wondering, what do we do with the pastor and the pastor's wife? And so they would put us at the table with their other religious relatives, like the, the aunt who knows her Bible backward and forward. And so they would put us at that table. Now, those weren't necessarily bad, but I was always a little anxious, as I noted, because sometimes I would think that somebody was going to start asking me questions and we would get into this theological discussion. And I had a sense that they probably had a different theological uh, interpretation of the scriptures than I did. And they would push me and, and want to know every little thing about the scriptures. And then I would feel a little panic coming up in me because I would realize I know the Bible to a point, but I am not a total, I'm not a biblical scholar. And so I'd always feel a little nervous about that. 
just on Sunday or Thursday night, my wife and I went to a play here in Chicago called The Christians, and it's a basically a play about a, a preacher, a pastor who has a pretty significant theological shift in what he believes about heaven and hell. And as the pastor preacher is talking about some things in the Gospel of Matthew, and as he started to expound on it, I knew where he was going. Like I knew what he was saying, and I, I had to fight the urge to stand up around the people with me and say, I know this. I know what he's going to say. I, I know this one. So to be a quote-unquote good pastor, I think, in the minds of some means that you have to know absolutely everything about the Bible. But really, being a pastor means that I know where to find the materials to read so that I can learn more about the Bible. So we're talking about this whole notion of the good life and the alternative where our focus is on the good enough life, the good life in our society People talk about striving for the good life and what that means. And I think at times it means that you have to have everything figured out in your life. You have to have the great job, the great relationship, just everything nailed down to have and lead the good life. But I think what we've been trying to convey is a sense that that's not always the case. In fact, trying to strive for that good life may lead you down a path that gives you anything but the good life. So we wanted to bring up this whole notion of the good enough life and explore what that means. And it doesn't usually mean, when you talk about the good enough life, or rather I should say the good enough life also I think means to effect a kind of humility that says that we don't have all the answers. That's that's what I want to focus on today. When you talk about the good life, living the good life, humility isn't necessarily something that's one of the top things that people talk about when you strive for the good life. But the good enough life, I think, humility is one of the key components of what that is. So we have an example of that, I think, of sorts in our passage today with this man named Nicodemus. So as I noted before, John 3, 1 through 17 is certainly a favorite for many. It has key texts for for maybe for you and for other Christians that you may know. John 3.16, of course, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. For those who don't know the Bible very well, that one you probably know at least a little bit of. Or John 3.7, this is also a popular one, When Jesus says, do not be astonished that I say to you, you must be born from above. Now, you may think, well, how do I know that one? There's another way of translating that verse. Another way of saying is, do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born again. The word, this Greek word that you must be born from above and can also mean you must be born again. So I think that whole phrase, born again, certainly is um, part of our culture. And so people may know this verse too. So the focus on this text uh, often goes to those two verses, and rightfully so. Those are great verses. But in the process, I think we may miss a couple of things, especially we may miss some things about this man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, for the most part, comes off fairly positively. He wants to seek out Jesus, and that is one of the, the first acts of discipleship. But an interesting thing about Nicodemus this is this, is that he comes at night which is used metaphorically in John to represent many things. And I'm going to say something about that in a second. But I also want to note that Nicodemus talks about himself as a a we, meaning he represents a group that all believes something about Jesus. 
So now before I talk about Nicodemus, I want to talk about this whole notion of Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. And there are some scholars that talk about light and darkness. This is a major theme in the Gospel of John. So again, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you're not quite as familiar with the Bible, Mark, Matthew, and Luke are sometimes called the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic meaning seen as one. That for the most part, they share a general overview of the life of Jesus. Now, each of those three Gospels have some unique uh, uniqueness Each of them have a uniqueness about them. Some share certain stories that the others don't. But for the most part, they give a pretty general uh, overview of Jesus that are similar. John, though, is different. John has a slightly different theological stance. Uh, He introduces uh, longer passages. Some of the stories in John aren't in in the others. And John uh, just has a different way of seeing things. So in John, light and darkness is a major theme. So if we were to keep on reading in the passage today, we would have come across John 3.19. John 3.19 says this, And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light. So darkness and light. So it could mean that night, when it says that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, could signify that What's about to happen really is something shrouded in mystery and misunderstanding. So I think this is true, but I think the way John goes about so much of his writing is he has lots of double meanings. So we have, as I noted before, this notion of this word to mean both from born from above and meaning born again. So what I want to focus on here is the whole notion of Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. So again, it could be metaphorical, meaning that John is trying to convey something here, but I think it also says something that perhaps Nicodemus really comes to Jesus at night. And if that's the case, this is a really interesting thing, because you might imagine Nicodemus, biblical or a scholar, and so coming to Jesus, who is starting to raise some eyebrows and bring up some questions, and especially this comes in the Gospel of John, the story of Jesus turning over the tables comes early. And so this passage comes right after Jesus overturns some tables in the temple, I'm sure causing a lot of confusion and anger. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. And I think perhaps one way to interpret this is Nicodemus doesn't want anybody to know that he's coming to Jesus. But he's intrigued by what Jesus is saying. And so maybe there's this internal struggle for Nicodemus that's going on. He's a scholar, meaning he knows a lot. He's a leader of the Jews. And yet this man who is causing some problems for these scholars, these, those in power, and many I'm sure are saying we want nothing to do with this Jesus person. In fact, we want to do whatever we can to get rid of him, including killing him. So Nicodemus, and yet Nicodemus, there's something about Jesus that intrigues him. And so he comes to him at night. I think we have to really focus on the fact that Jesus, or that Nicodemus, humbles himself. He doesn't say, I know it all. This Jesus guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Instead, he says, I'm intrigued. I want to learn more. Uh, But he's not quite ready to do so in the daylight when others can see him. And so he comes to Jesus at night. It is hard to be humble, isn't it? It's hard to admit that you need help. It's hard to admit sometimes that you don't know at all. And so for Nicodemus, he can go a little 
ways on that, but he can't really go all the way in acknowledging that. I, I'll come to you and ask you questions, but I'm not going to do so in a way that others can see me. I'll be humble, but it's an imperfect kind of humility. I was listening to a podcast a few weeks ago put out by the author Malcolm Gladwell. He has his own podcast now, and he was focusing on this really interesting story about um, 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 about free throw shooting. And so you may wonder, what does this have to do with anything? But he was focusing on a basketball player named Rick Barry, who was uh, in the NBA Hall of Fame, had his peak in the 1960s and 70s. One of the things that Rick Barry was known for was his expert free throw shooting. I think he, if I'm remembering correctly, I was going to write this down, but it's, uh, he shot over 90% from the free throw line, meaning when you're at the free throw line, if you shoot usually like 70, 70%, you're doing really well. 80%, you are one of the best. And if you 90%, that's like unheard of. But it was the way that Rick Barry went about doing it. Whenever you watch a basketball game, you probably see, and it's hard, obviously, in a podcast to show you, but they hold the ball above their head and shoot it that way, like you would shoot a jump shot. Barry did it uh, what you might call granny style. He had it down at his waist, and he threw it up underhand. And he was able to do so in a way, again, to be one of the best free throw shooters of all time. Now, the reason Malcolm Gladwell did this piece is the fact that Barry believes this is that anybody can learn this and that it will increase your free throw shooting by significant amount. But there are so many players for whom it is difficult or they refuse to do this free throw shooting because they don't want to humble themselves and shoot it in a way that makes them look weak. In fact, as Rick Barry was having this interview with Malcolm Gladwell, he said there's one time, one time an NBA player came to him to learn how to shoot it this way. But he said, but Rick Barry didn't want to name who it was. And Malcolm Gladwell tried to get him to, to name who it was. He said, no, I can't, I can't do that to the guy. That wouldn't be fair. And then Malcolm Gladwell kind of notes the fact that it's this dark, shameful secret that you were trying to learn to shoot free throws and improve your free throw percentage. And so, so many of these NBA players especially ones that shoot free throws poorly. There are some really good players, except when it comes to free throw shooting, they can't bring themselves to say, I'm going to shoot it in a way that makes me look like I'm weak or shoot it like a, a granny would shoot it. It's, it's hard to be humble. It's hard to admit that we need help, and it's hard to put ourselves in a position where we are vulnerable and where we say, I, I don't know it all. We're like Nicodemus. I can take it to a point, but I don't want everybody to know that I don't know everything or that I'm curious or that I want to ask questions. Because living the good life means, I think, again, in our society, that we don't show any cracks. But living the good enough life, I think, does just the opposite. What does it mean to say that we know things up to a certain point when we live into that good enough life? What does it mean that we do things only so far before we acknowledge that we need God? What would it mean to live our lives that way? To say, I can do things to a point that's good enough, and then I need the help from God, and then I need Jesus. The good life, as our culture defines it, emphasizes individualism. The good enough life emphasizes humility and an acknowledgement that you need someone, capital S, you need someone more than you. And that goes against our individualistic culture strongly. You know, Black History Month starts on Wednesday, and there will be lots of um, biographies that you will maybe see, watch, 
or read about uh, notable African-Americans throughout history, and that's great. But I would also challenge uh, folks who go to our church and friends of mine, too, and others who listen to the podcast to actually read a book on black history. I've been trying to do so myself uh, in recent months, and a few that I would recommend if you want uh, something with some theological uh, background, the uh, book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree by James Cone is wonderful. I noted a couple of weeks ago this book called Warmth, The Warmth of Other Sons by Isabel Wilkerson uh, that focuses on the Great Migration. I'm reading that right now. If you want to stretch your, your brain a little bit, read something that's a little bit more academic, there's a book called The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime, and the Making of Modern Urban America by Khalil uh, Muhammad that I'm reading. It's a little bit of a, uh, a tough, tougher read. But if you really want a book that's just really inspiring, a book called Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson that I think has been noted by many others. And it's a story, his own story, but it also looks at uh, imprisonment in our country and lynching in our country. And so you get a bit of a history of where we are today uh, when it comes to those issues. It's also one of the most inspiring books I've ever read. Brian is a lawyer. He works for and helped found what's known as the Equal Justice Initiative located in Alabama, which among other things, it seeks to make sure that individuals who are on death row in this country get adequate defense counsel, since too many of them should not have been on death row in the first place. I've heard him speak uh, live. I've heard him on TED Talks, and as I noted, uh, reading interviews by him too. And one of the things, one of the many things that I admire about him and am moved whenever I hear him is I'm, I'm taken by his humility. And we see this in the book, uh, Just Mercy. The second to last chapter in the book uh, is called Broken. And it talks about his own challenges in the doing all of the work that he does. And in this chapter called Broken, he talks about a time when he was just overwhelmed. He was constantly worrying about cases that he was taking on, clients that he was serving, traveling all the time. And he said in the book, the lack of compassion that I witnessed every day had finally exhausted me. And he wondered to himself, why, why am I doing this? I could just leave. I could just leave. And he's sharing some vulnerability here about what was going on in his life. But then upon reflection, he realized, I do what I do because I'm broken too. He continues saying, we're all broken by something. We have all hurt someone and have been hurt. We all share the condition of brokenness, even if our brokenness is not equivalent. And he says, our brokenness is our common source of humanity. People who live the good life don't talk about being broken. People who live the good life don't admit these things and share their humility in these ways and express their vulnerability in these ways. He was talking in his last chapter about getting these two convictions overturned in New Orleans and the joy that he felt and the celebration that others were feeling after these men who had been in Angola prison in Louisiana for unjust crimes or they were uh, imprisoned unjustly. And in the midst of the celebration, he was walking outside in the courthouse and he noticed there was an older woman and I'm using now the language that he was using. He said, I noticed an older woman with smooth, dark skin wearing what he called a church meeting hat. 
She sat on the marble steps in this massive courthouse hallway, and he thought she looked tired. But he also realized he'd seen her around. He'd seen her in the courthouse, so he assumed that she was somehow related to one of the men he was representing. representing. And so as he looked at her, she motioned him over. And as he approached her, she smiled and said, I'm tired, and I'm not getting up, so you'll have to come near to get a hug. And he laughed and gave her a hug, and he started wondering about her own story, saying, are you here for one of his clients? And she said, no. She noted, this is just a, a place full of pain. She said, I'm here to help people. And she began to share her story. She said, many years ago, her 16-year-old grandson had been murdered, and she went to the trial of those who had been arrested and later convicted, and they were given life in prison, and she thought this would make her feel better. But in the midst of her questions, in the midst of her grief, in the midst of her asking why, Lord, she realized that she didn't feel better. And so she cried. And she cried and she cried, and this woman came over and started talking to her and listening to her. And she let this woman lean on her. And she talked about how that made her feel. And how that helped her so much in the midst of her grief. And so a year later, she was still wrestling with this grief. And she said, well, I don't know what to do with this grief. I don't know what to do. What's next after losing my grandson? So she decided a year later to come down to the courthouse. And she looked for people who had lost someone. Initially, she looked for people who had lost someone who had been killed. And so she wanted to grieve with the families like she knew their grief. But she realized that those who were particularly grieving too were the families of those who had been accused, those who were convicted. And so she let them lean on her too, like that woman had allowed her to lean on. And so she thought and said to herself, this is why I'm here. And she noted that I'm, I'm here to catch some of the stones people cast at each other. And when she said that phrase, Brian kind of chuckled because he knew that phrase. He had used that phrase before in his speeches. And it's hearkening to the story of Jesus, who is there with a woman who is accused of adultery. And he utters that phrase, let those without sin cast the first stone. And Brian was talking to his audience saying, we need to be those to catch those stones of those who are treated and accused unjustly. And she was using that same phrase and she was encouraging him to continue to be a stone catcher. And as she was talking to him in this way, and he kind of felt some of that exhaustion just come out of him. And she took his hands and she just started to rub his palms. She started to massage his hands. And he had these mixed feelings of noting that I need to get going. I need to have things to do. And this also seems a little odd that this woman is massaging my hands, these stone catching hands. And yet also he noted it comforted him. And she said to him, I'm just going to let you lean on me a bit because perhaps she's seen, she saw in Brian somebody who was broken. And even though he had just won a case, somebody who needed somebody to lean on, somebody who was humble enough to say, I, I cannot do this all on my own for him to note his own brokenness. 
And she said, I'm just going to let you lean on me a bit. And so he did and let her continue to massage his palms. And then eventually when he excused himself and he put a, or gave her a kiss on the cheek because he needed to go. And she said, oh, wait. And she dug in her purse and she got out a piece of wrapped peppermint candy. And she said, here, take this. And Brian writes, the gesture made me happy in a way that I cannot fully explain. And she said, and he said, well, thank you. And he smiled and leaned down and gave her a kiss. And then she waved at him saying, go on, go on. She had let him lean on her. She had, or he, and he had let her massage his stone catching palms because he knew he could only do so much, and he was humble enough to admit that, and he was humble enough to accept this peppermint candy and not quite explaining why it felt so good to receive this, but it did, and he acknowledged that, and he knew a broken person needs to receive these kinds of things, a palm massage, a piece of peppermint candy. A broken person, a humble person living the good enough life knows that they have to at some point say, I can only do so much. And then I need God. And then I need Jesus. And then I know others who are in the flesh representing God and Jesus. And then I need to lean on them because we are in a time where we have to be humble enough to say, I cannot do all of this by myself. We need someone to offer us a piece of candy and we need to be humble enough to say, I will receive this because this is a gift from God. Friends, in order to live the good enough life, we must be humble to receive what God, a good God, has to give to us. So go into this week, go into your life with open hands and open arms and say, Lord, Give to me and be ready to receive and be humble enough to know you can't do it yourself. Receive that strength and that mercy and that grace from God because we need it to live into these lives that God has created for us. Amen. Friends, thank you for listening once again. I am going to be back in two weeks. I'm off next week and so... Uh, as always, you can um, go to our Urban Village website, uh, UBC, or sorry, urbanvillagechurch.org, and our podcast, or you can download our Urban Village Church apps, yes, apps on any of the uh, favorite app stores that you have out there for your smartphones. You can download those apps. You can get this podcast and podcasts from other great pastors at our church, too. So take a look and a listen. And I'll be back in two weeks. Until then, please reach out if you'd like. Chris at urbanvillagechurch.org, Twitter at Christian Kuhn. I'm always happy to connect with you in that way. So until then, may the peace of Christ be yours.